And you can take your Bibles and turn them with me to the book of Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3, if you're using these black Bibles, and we have plenty of them scattered uh, underneath the seats all around you uh, for you to borrow or to have, uh, you'll find it on page 918, Ephesians chapter 3. So as we've been going through Ephesians, journeying through this wonderful book, uh, it's been like climbing a great mountain. Uh, with glorious views along the way. And each time we climb higher, we see something more spectacular, and then we realize that we can go even higher and see even more. Uh, We began our journey in chapter 1 blown away by revelations of your true identity in Christ. You've been adopted by a God who loves you. You've been redeemed and forgiven of your sins by the blood of Christ. God has placed His mark, His seal of ownership in you, which is His very Holy Spirit. And we realized that we are part of His grand and glorious purpose to unite or reconcile all things in the universe on earth and in heaven to Him. In chapter 2, Paul reminded us that we all once were under the threat of God's wrath and bondage to our sin and under dominion of the, of the devil, the prince of the power of the air. But God, being rich in mercy, has rescued us. He's brought us from spiritual death into life, and he's making us his workmanship, his work of art, as he makes us more and more like Jesus. But more than that, God God has not only reconciled us to God, but God through the gospel is reconciling man to man. And Paul gives us an example of that in chapter 2, in that God takes Jewish people and he takes Gentile people, peoples that formerly had nothing in common with with one another except their sin, uh, peoples who were estranged from one another and they hated and despised one another. They wouldn't even sit and and eat a meal together. God now changes their minds, not only about God, but he changes their hearts about one another, and he unites them together in the church, in the same spiritual household, with God being the father of them all. In fact, Paul says that this Jewish-Gentile mix is no longer to be regarded as two groups, but one new man made out of the two a third group, a third race, a, a new humanity that God is creating, a humanity that now loves and cares for and serves one another, a, a humanity that Paul says is now the new temple of God, which is the dwelling place for his spirit. And just when we think we've gone as high as we can go on that mountain, it gets even better. In chapter 3, Paul peels back the curtain and he reveals that this mystery of the gospel, this racial, cultural, ethnic unification unified under the banner of Jesus Christ, this was part of God's plan from the very beginning. And why? Because God is kind? Yes. Uh, Because God is loving and loves to forgive sinners, yes, but also we discovered last week as we reached the summit of the mountain that, that there is way more going on than just that. In chapter 3, verse 10, the Apostle Paul dropped a revelation on us that was surprising and shocking to some of you last week. I know that because I heard some of your feedback on the, on the sermon last week. We discovered in verse 10 
that the reason why God is doing all of this is that so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ. That's it, brothers and sisters. Welcome to the summit. Welcome to the peak of the mountain. I I don't even know if I have words to describe to you how utterly transfixed and captured I am by verse 10. And you should be captured by it also. The stakes of what God is doing in your life and in what he is doing in our lives collectively in this church are way higher than we ever thought. This isn't just about God saving you and taking you to heaven. This is, this is about God working in this church in such a way that it puts God's very wisdom on display to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places, to the angelic powers, and not just the good angels, but, but those that Paul calls in chapter 6, the demonic powers and principalities, and, and to the one whom Paul calls in chapter 2, the prince of the power of the air. As the church... And I'm not just talking about the church in general. Let's make it uh, personal here. As Harbin's Community Baptist Church lives as this new race, this new humanity that God is creating, as we grow in holiness and purity, as we are increasingly salt and light in a dark world, as we love and serve one another, and as we look more and more like God, that, my friends, has cosmic ramifications, as we become a showcase to rulers and authorities in heavenly places to the billions and trillions of unseen angelic eyes peering down at us. We become the example, we become the display of God's incredible wisdom. Wow. Church is way more than just like a a nice place to hang out for an hour with your friends. (laughs) This is big. The cross of Jesus, which to the universe looked foolish and moronic, turns out to be the instrument of universal reconciliation, demonstrating that the foolishness of God is wiser than the wisdom of men or angels. Ladies and gentlemen, brothers and sisters, identity matters. And living in accordance with your new identity matters. The stakes are higher than we ever thought when we first got saved. I thought I was just about going to heaven. (laughs) Way bigger than that. This all has cosmic implications. And in response to all of these glorious realities that Paul has unfolded in chapters 1 through 3, he now, in this next section in Ephesians, is going to pray for the Ephesian church specifically, but really by extension, he's praying for all believers. Paul knew that this letter would be circulated to other churches in Asia Minor, and and of course it has continued to circulate for thousands of years and has reached us here at Harbin's Church today. And this prayer is, is relevant for us, and it's instructive, because it informs us of how and why you and I should be praying in our own lives and for our church. So as we read this prayer together, we're going to spend at least a couple of weeks looking at this this prayer of Paul. There's a lot here. As we read this prayer together, and we contemplate it over the next couple of weeks, we would do well to compare it with the content of our own prayers, and then ask ourselves, do we have the same priorities in our prayer life as Paul? And Do we have the same 
attitude and disposition and, and, and demeanor and, and, and theological foundation for our prayers as, as Paul, and if not, why? So with that said, let's go ahead and stand now out of honor and reverence for the reading of the words of our great and glorious God and Savior. We are in Ephesians chapter 3. This morning, I'm only going to have time to to focus on verses 14 and 15, but just for the sake of context, we're going to read the whole prayer, so we're going to read on down through the end of the chapter. God's Word says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of His glory He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to Him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to Him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, <clears throat> as we read and as we collectively ponder Your Word this morning, none of us have the strength or resources in and of ourselves to let this Word affect us and, 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 and move us and, in such a way that we're, we're just going to go out in our own strength and, and live out the implications of Your Word. And so I, I pray that through the Holy Spirit, you would strengthen us to receive your word and to apply your word, to live in accordance with your word. And I pray that you would bless the preaching of your word as this preacher attempts to rightly divide it. And I pray that you would bless the hearing of your word as my brothers and sisters here attempt to really grasp and understand what the Spirit has to say to Harbin's Community Baptist Church this morning. I ask of you these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So we're going to learn, we're, we're going to kind of go to prayer school with Paul uh, for these next couple of weeks. And uh, you didn't know that you enrolled in that, but here you are. And we're going to learn a lot. And we're going to learn uh, three specific things about prayer just by considering verses 14 and 15 this morning. And the first thing that I want us to consider in this text is the priority of prayer. The priority of prayer. In chapters 4 through 6, Paul is going to practically and concretely explain how we as a church are to live and relate to one another and the world in such a way that puts God's wisdom on display to the universe. He's going to apply the theology that we just learned in chapters 1 through 3. But before rushing right into a bunch of practical stuff, there's one more thing that's needed. There's one more thing that's needed to bridge the theology of chapters 1 through 3 with the application of chapters 4 through 6, and that bridge is prayer. This is why this section starts with Paul saying, 
in verse 14, for this reason I bow my knees before the Father. He is compelled to pray in response to everything he's been talking about in chapters 1 through 3. And, and, and in light of everything that's coming in chapters 4 through 6. How is the Ephesian church going to live up to the calling that God has called them to? How's the church going to live in peace and harmony and unity and forgiveness? How are husbands and wives going to live in such a way that paints a beautiful gospel picture to the world? How can the church be imitators of God reflecting His holiness in a dark and evil world? And how can you in your life live for Him? How can you break free from the sin that so easily entangles you? Whether that be gossip or lust or anger or anxiety or sinful addictions, how are you going to be able to do this in the face of fierce opposition from the evil powers and principalities that do not want the wisdom of God to be displayed in the world through your life and through the life of this church, and they are hell-bent on stopping us? How are you going to do that? Paul knows that there is no way we're going to be able to live up to this grand and glorious calling to which God has called us to apart from God's power working through us, which is why he now prays, and in doing so, he sets an example for us as he's teaching us something, uh, and what he's teaching us is, is that we can't do this on our own. And so as important as all of the practical application is that is coming in the next few chapters, and some of you are practical application people, you, you promised, Neymar, that the first half of the book was doctrine and the second half was practical application. I'm ready for the practical stuff. It's coming. It's coming real soon, but we're not going to rush into that. We can't do it on our own. He can't just start giving us a bunch of instructions as if oh, we've got this. It's no big deal. Just, just tell us what to do, Paul, and, and, and we're on it. Piece of cake. Nothing could be further from the truth, and Paul knows it. Yes, we need God's revelation for our lives through his word, but it is equally important for us to be empowered by God to live it out. You see, Paul realizes what Solomon figured out in Psalm 127, unless the Lord builds the house, those who labor in it are in vain. The point is, is that you can work and you can labor and you can apply yourself all you want. Uh, even to the reading of God's word, uh, to doing good things, to ministry and service. But if you don't have the strength of the Lord empowering you to do it all, it's all in vain. And the strength and the power of God is mediated through prayer, which is exactly why in the middle of Paul's instruction, he is compelled to drop to his knees before God the Father because the calling of the Ephesians to live for Christ is way bigger than their own strength and their own resources. This is exactly why Jesus, after spending four chapters from John 13 through 16, teaching incredible, life-changing truths to his disciples, then in chapter 17, when he's done, what does he do? He lifts his eyes up to heaven, and he prays for them. So if Paul, the great apostle and messenger of God, felt compelled to pray after he taught his flock... And if Jesus, the greater teacher, the greatest teacher of them all, prayed for his disciples after teaching them, who are we to think that we can sit down with our Bibles or sit down in church and learn from God's word and then run off into the world prayerless without any acknowledgement for our need for God to enable us to do the things that he has called us to do? 
And, and this, was, this uh, section was uh, uh, convicting for me as a pastor. How can I, as your pastor, neglect to pray for you regularly and earnestly and urgently? Now, I do pray for you. I pray for the congregation, but after reading this, I'm like, I need to pray more. I'm nowhere near as good of a teacher as Jesus or Paul. And if they are beseeching God's help and strength on behalf of their hearers, how much more should Deemer Webb? And the same goes for all of you who teach Sunday school or Bible studies or teaching your kids around the the kitchen table. Are you praying for them? Uh, You see, this should go way beyond just head knowledge. Well, 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 I taught my kids this Bible story or I'm I'm catechizing my kids, so I'm going to move on now. Are you praying that they they would have the strength to be able to weave into their lives the truths that you're telling them? And by the way, the same principle uh, uh, applies for you and your personal life as you open up God's Word to hear from Him. Martin Lloyd-Jones notes that prayer is as necessary as preaching. He says that it is as essential that we should pray for ourselves, that we should instruct ourselves. Yes, he says we read our Bibles, we read books about the Bible, we read commentaries, that's all well and good. Doctrine is essential, but knowledge is not enough. It is equally essential, Lloyd-Jones says, that we pray that we may be receptive to the instruction, that it just doesn't stop in our minds, but it affects our wills. Think about what the psalmist prayed, open my eyes, Lord, that I might behold wonderful things in your law. Now, we would would all say amen to all of this, and we would verbally affirm the importance of prayer, but what we really believe about our need for prayer isn't reflected in our verbal affirmations, it's reflected in whether or not we actually pray. Do you, after reading God's Word, close your Bibles, rush out the door, and get on with your day without a word to God about what you just read, uh, without a plea with him, uh, to, to, to plead to him to, to help you to actually live out what you just read, or do you think you're fine and you can just do this all by yourself? When we wake up in the morning, how much time do we spend in prayer? How much time, anytime, day or night, do we spend in prayer? If I were to ask you, what is the essential, non-negotiable thing you need to live your life as a Christian, probably most of you would say the Word. That's wonderful. But I wonder how many of us would say also prayer. And if we say prayer, do we actually live as if it's a necessary component of our day? Or is it for, for some of us not an uncommon thing for us to go an entire day without significant prayer beyond grace for the food that we're about to eat? You see, the truth is, is that we have bought into the lie of our self-sufficiency more than we realize. Uh, Our daily lifestyle betrays that fact because we live as, as, as if all we needed to live as a Christian is some Bible information put into our brains, and then we'll work it out on our own throughout the day. And, 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 and we'll, we'll, we'll pray if we can get around to it, but if we don't, it's really no big deal. Oh, that we might heed the words and adopt the heart of Charles Spurgeon. Spurgeon said that prayer is the ship which brings home the richest freight. 
It is the soil which yields the most abundant harvest. Brother, when you rise in the morning, your business so presses that with a hurried word or two, down you go into the world, and at night, jaded and tired, you give God the end of the day. The consequence is that you have no communion with him. The reason we have not more true religion now is because we have not more prayer. Spurgeon goes on to say, I go from chapel to chapel in this metropolis, and I see pretty good congregations, but I go to their prayer meetings on a week evening, and I see a dozen persons. Can God bless us, Spurgeon says? Can he pour out his spirit upon us while such things as these exist? Go and say to your minister, sir, we must have more prayer. Urge the people to more prayer. Have a prayer meeting. Even if you have it all to yourself, and if you're asked how many were present, you can say four. Four? How so? Why, there is myself and God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Ghost. And we have had rich and real communion together. We must have an outpouring of real devotion or else what is to become of many of our churches? Oh, may God awaken us all and stir us up to pray for when we pray, we shall be victorious. All that good stuff was Spurgeon, not me. (laughs) And he's right. And I guess this is as good of a time as any to advertise men's prayer tonight at 6.30 here at the church. I would love to see some faces that I've never seen before at prayer, if you can make it, or maybe some I haven't seen in a while. I would love to have you. It's always a blessing. And if you can't make it, then make other times for prayer in your life. Could it be that so many Christians live lives that are are weak and powerless and entangled by sin and defeat and living such impotent lives because as much as they might read and hear God's word, they do not follow the example of Paul bowing their knees before God for his help and his empowerment to live the life that they're called to live? Jesus said something to us very sobering. He said, apart from me, you can do a handful of things. Is that what he said? He said, apart from me, you can do nothing. And that's a very hard and sobering and humbling teaching, isn't it? But at the same time, on the flip side, it's also a very encouraging teaching. Because if that's true, then the inverse is true as well. If apart from Jesus, you can do nothing, that means that with Jesus, connected to Jesus, relying on His immeasurable power working in your life, you can do nothing absolutely anything that God has called you to do. And Paul knows that. And that's exactly why he begins this section on bent knees, pleading for his brothers and sisters. We learn from Paul here the priority of prayer. But we also learn about the person to whom we pray, the person to whom we pray. Paul says, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. You know, prayer is something that really is, actually, is popular to talk about today. Uh, you hear athletes talk about praying before games, or, you know, they score a touchdown and they kind of do that, you know. You hear celebrities and politicians talking about prayer. But very often in our culture, the, the one whom people pray to is just some sort of vague, nebulous, undefined, benevolent higher power whose sole purpose, whose sole purpose is just to meet my felt needs and to rubber stamp my agenda and my goals. But notice how Paul begins his prayer. He says in verse 14, I bow my knees. That's interesting because 
the standard Jewish posture of prayer was not bending the knee. It was standing with arms upraised, sometimes maybe even rocking back and forth. Maybe you've seen uh, Jews, Orthodox Jews at the Wailing Wall in Israel, you know, do that, pray in that way. But here, Paul bows the knee. Why? Is, is, he, is, he, is he saying that this is how we should always pray? No. But the outward posture of bowing the knee is meant to reflect internal realities that are going on in the heart. What kind of person do we typically associate bending the knee to? A monarch, a king. Paul is living in the first century under Roman rule. Emperor Nero is on the throne. Everyone in the empire is bending the knee to this megalomaniacal murderous madman. They're they're bowing low to the ground before him. They're acknowledging his lordship. To say anyone other than Caesar is Lord is a very dangerous thing. But I love the irony here in chapter 3, where Paul, in a Roman prison, he starts out in verse 1. Remember, we looked at this last last time. He starts out in verse 1 saying, I, Paul, a prisoner, not of Nero, but of Christ Jesus. And now here in verse 14, Paul chained to a a guard who is in the service of the emperor, Paul here is bending the knee, not to Nero, but to God. You see, Paul continues to frame his interpretation of his circumstances through the grid of spiritual heavenly realities, which is why nothing is rattling him. He knows he's in prison at the pleasure of God. That ultimately is the one who has him in jail. And likewise, if there is anything he needs and desires, he's going to bring it not to King Nero, but to the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Really, what Paul is doing here is he's going over Nero's head, and he's approaching the one who's really in charge. This is what we all are doing every time we pray. We are coming to the one who is Lord of all. And of course, if God really is the supreme monarch, that means that ultimately when we pray, Our submissive attitude of bowing the knee is a way of saying that ultimately it's God's will and God's priorities and God's agenda that is supreme, not my own. And so we should always make our requests with confidence on the one hand, knowing that God has the authority to do whatever we ask, but on the other hand, uh, having the attitude that Jesus himself demonstrated when he prayed to God in the Garden of Gethsemane when he said, nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. That's how you approach a king. And by the way, we learned something else about prayer here. This is the one ministry that you can engage in no matter where you are or what's going on. Paul is in prison. He can't go to the church in Ephesus and personally help and minister to them. But it doesn't matter. Through the power of prayer, Paul can reach way beyond the confines of a Roman prison and impact events hundreds and thousands of miles away. If all you can do for someone is pray, you are doing something immensely practical and powerful. Uh, Sometimes we don't believe that. We feel like, oh, all I can do is I can just pray. Just pray? Just? If you are sick and homebound, and I know some of you watching this are, are listening online right now, your reach can extend way beyond the, the confines of your home and you can make a difference in the kingdom of God through your prayers. 
But notice also that Paul's not just coming before some impersonal, distant, all-powerful deity. He says, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. One of the great truths of Scripture is that God is Father. He's not the Father of everyone. The Scriptures tell us that there are two groups of people in the world, children of God and children of the devil. And all of us initially find ourselves in that second group, in rebellion against God, and part of God's redemptive purposes is to bring outsiders into His family. That's Paul's point back in chapter 1 where he says that in love He predestined us for adoption as sons. And so God sent Jesus into the world to deal with the one thing that keeps us outside of God's family, which is our sin. And He dealt with it by becoming a substitute for sinners. Jesus, God's Son, became as an outsider. He was treated as one who was not a son. As He hung on the cross, He took on Himself the sins of people like us, and they were punished in Him. And the proof that the sin debt was paid was when God raised Jesus from the dead, proving that He was God's true Son. And so now anyone who turns from their sin and unites themselves to Jesus by faith will find their sins dealt with and forgiven. That barrier between them and God is torn down, and they're now brought into the household of God, God becoming their father. And friend, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, that invitation to be a part of the family is extended to you. As we talk about prayer this morning, most of what I'm saying is relevant only to believers. But if you're not a Christian, there is definitely one prayer that matters for you, and that's relevant, and that is the prayer, God have mercy on me, a sinner. And you can be sure that God will hear and answer because all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. And you will know that you are His child. And we, God's children, have a kind of relationship with God that no one else in the world has, which is exactly exactly what Paul was getting at uh, back up in verse 12 when he said that we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in Him. Now, this acknowledgement of God as our Father should be a great encouragement to us as we pray, but it could be confusing and discouraging for those who perhaps have had bad fathers in their own lives, and maybe that's you. Uh, There are people who genuinely struggle with the notion of God as Father because of their past family life. They they maybe had bad dads, and and, and sometimes we tend to project our idea uh, of Father uh, based on our earthly father. We project that onto God. That's a real problem. And yet God's revelation of Himself as Father isn't due to the fact that God was searching for some sort of metaphor to help people understand Him, and and, and God's just up there like, okay, well, people have fathers, I'm kind of like that, so I'll tell people I'm the Heavenly Father. As if earthly fathers are, are really showing what fatherhood is and God's just a copy. It's not the case at all. It's actually the reverse. God's revelation of himself as father isn't God's, isn't God's way of saying, I'm like your dad. It's not a metaphor. In truth, it's God who's the real father, and all earthly fathers are but shadowy, imperfect reflections of him. Unlike earthly fathers, God is perfectly good, perfectly loving, perfectly generous, perfectly available, perfectly gracious, not irritable perfectly wise. And the best of human dads fall dreadfully short of of the kind of father that God the Father is. 
I grew up in a home with an abusive father. And, and for me, one of the best things about becoming a Christian was that I realized that now I, have, I finally have a good father. I finally have a good father that I can rely on. Sometimes people act like God is not a, a loving father and, and, and that he has better things to do than to listen to their prayers. Or, or maybe that there's more important people that God prioritizes and you have to wait in the back of the line to get to him. Kind of like when you draw the number letter combo at the DMV. And you're just kind of waiting forever before you're acknowledged or wondering when your number is going to come up and you get to, get to go forward. God's a good God. He's a good father. It's not the kind of relationship that he has with his, his children. If you're a father and you, 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 you love your kids, you, you, you love it when your kids come to you. Now, we're imperfect fathers, so I know sometimes we get irritated by that, but ideally, we should love it. We should be full of joy when they come and sit on our lap. How much more God must be with us when we approach him as father. Commenting on Ephesians 3, John MacArthur says that this is such a majestic passage. It's so exalted and elevated that you would have thought that Paul would say, I bow my knees unto the eternal king of glory, something really grand- grandiose. But he says, to the fa- but he says, I bow my knee to the father, and there's a reason why. MacArthur goes on to say, the use of the term father emphasizes the acceptance of God when we come to him in prayer. We do not come to God in prayer fearing that he is some kind of indifferent, cold, unloving, distant deity. We don't come to God as some being to be appeased as the pagans do. We come to a tender, loving, concerned, compassionate, accepting father who literally waits with anticipation in his heart for the moment that we enter his presence and eagerly embraces us. That's why the word father is used, because father conveys acceptance and compassion and tenderness and concern. And this is the one to whom Paul prays and the one to whom you can pray. And because he is a good and perfect father, we can know that he will always respond rightly whenever we come to him in prayer with our requests. Remember what Jesus said. He said, if you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, How much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask Him? The third thing that we see is the supremacy of the one to whom we pray. The supremacy of the one to whom we pray. Paul says, I bow my knees before the Father, then verse 15, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. Now, this is one of the more difficult phrases in the book of Ephesians, and depending on what commentary you read, you're going to get different answers uh, on on, uh, untangling this here. Here's a couple of different views that I think are are, are possible and reasonable, and I'm not going to delve into all of them now. You can ponder that and, and study that on your own sometimes. But regardless of the specific view, generally speaking, I think this seems to be a reference to to God's creation and his dominion. It really reminds me of Genesis. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And in the book of Genesis in particular, but really throughout the Bible in general, the naming of something signifies authority. For example, if um, you know, earlier this morning we had our greeting time between songs, and, 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 and imagine, Jordan, if I came up to you and, and, and I, said, I said, hey, Bob, how's it going? And, 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 and you said, well, my name's not Bob. And, and I said to you, well, it is now. 
And, and then I go over to, to Marietta and I say, good morning, Bertha, good to see you. And if I just started doing that to, to all of you, and, and just calling your kids different names, I, I wonder what would start to go through your minds. Maybe you think I was starting to lose my mind, which could, could actually happen on any given Sunday. Uh, but you also may be thinking, well, who do you think you are? That's a good question. Because if I go around changing names, naming things, it's communicating significant authority. In my case, it's communicating an authority that I don't have, which is why you wouldn't take it seriously. But in God's case, it's serious. He says, you were once named Jacob. Now you are named Israel. You were once called Simon. Now you are called Peter. What was God doing there? He is exercising authority and dominion. And here Paul says, it is from God whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, which, which I take to mean that his authority extends everywhere, in earth and in the heavenly realms. Let's remember that Paul's writing to a people who were, until very recently, steeped in the occult and in the world of spirits and demons and powers and principalities. They were controlled by the fear of these beings. In fact, demonic possession was a terrifying reality in the city of Ephesus. It was a common thing. You can read about it in Acts 19. Paul himself in his ministry there had multiple encounters with demons. And I don't think it's a coincidence that one of the big themes in Ephesians is the fact that Jesus Christ is ruler of all the principalities and the powers. Paul, Paul never addresses the fears of the Ephesians by telling them, yeah, that's just a bunch of superstitious garbage. Don't worry about it. Instead, he reminds them that because of their newfound identity in Christ, they are now connected to the one who has sovereign dominion over everything. Not just, not just humans, not just Emperor Nero, but over all the angelic powers. God is the power that named the powers. And so when you pray to your father, you pray to the one who's in absolute control over everything. You understand, Christian brother and sister, that you don't have to be afraid of the devil? Some people are. I didn't say you don't have to be wary of the devil. That's what Ephesians chapter 6 is all about, and we'll get there in several weeks. But you don't, you don't have to be afraid of him. Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world, Jesus says. You don't have, in fact, you don't have to be afraid of anything. Because there's absolutely nothing that falls outside the bounds of his sovereign control, and there's absolutely nothing that can limit his power. Why should the nations say, where is their God? Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. I love um, Daniel chapter 4, where Nebuchadnezzar loses his mind. You remember that story? Uh, Nebuchadnezzar at that time was the most powerful man on the planet, he thought he was all that. He thought he was Lord. Thought he had dominion and control over everything. God humiliates him to the point where, where Nebuchadnezzar temporarily goes insane. And God, God puts him in his place. And when Nebuchadnezzar regains his senses and he repents of his arrogance, he says, all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And God does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of earth. Oh, there it is again. Heaven, earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? Or Isaiah 46, God himself says, I'm God, and there's none like me. 
declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. That's that's raw sovereignty, (laughs) y'all. God reigns over everything. He, He reigns over every creature on earth. He reigns and names every creature in heaven. He he reigns over every single situation and circumstance that you are in. God is in control over everything. Therefore, you should have nothing but confidence when you pray. Not only because you're praying to a father who loves you, you know, you you can have a father who loves you but is weak. You can have a father who loves you but his hands are tied. There's there's only so much I can do. I'd I'd love to help, but uh, my hands are tied. Folks, you need more than a father who loves you. You need a father who is bigger and stronger than anything that comes against you in life and can do anything that you need him to do. Now, some people say, well, if God is sovereign, if God is in control, and God does whatever he wants to, then why pray? What's the point? Ever thought of that? I bet you some of you have. Uh, What's the point of praying to a God like that if he's in such control of the universe and he's just going to do whatever he's going to do anyway? Well, I would like to counter that question with a question of my own. And my question is, why wouldn't you pray to a God like that? I mean, if there's something that I want, that's the person that I want to talk to. I don't want to talk to lesser beings. I want to go right to the top, to the only one in the cosmos who has unlimited power and resources. One who will... Answer my prayers, verse 16, according to the riches of his glory, and one who, verse 20, is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think. See, I I would ask you, if you don't think God is sovereign, why are you praying? You're wasting your time, or you're rolling the dice at best. James says in James chapter 4, Well, he doesn't say that you have not because God wasn't able to give it to you. He says you have not because you ask not. What does that mean? It's not complicated. You don't have to go to the original Greek to parse this out and figure it out. It means that there there is stuff you could have that you don't have and you don't have it because you aren't praying. It's not rocket science which should lead you to ask what stuff don't you have because you aren't asking for it. And don't say a new car. We're not one of those churches. God, you said you have not because you asked not, so I'm asking you for a Porsche. That's not the application. Praying is important. It's immensely important. I I hope that's a takeaway uh, that you have from this message. But just as important, it's not just praying, but it's what you're praying that's important. As a matter of fact, it's critical. And we're going to get into more of that next week. If you want to see more power in your prayer life and more direct and obvious answers to prayer, what you pray for is absolutely essential. Not just that you pray, but what you pray for. There are three kinds of prayers, as far as I can figure. There are prayers that God will never answer, and there are prayers that He may or may not answer, and we just aren't sure. 
And then there are prayers he will most certainly answer, guaranteed. And I think many of us lack power and satisfaction in our prayer life because we spend way more time praying for the first two kinds of prayers than praying for number three. But Paul here and elsewhere in the Bible prays prayers that fall into that third category. And I believe that if we at Harbin's Church spent more of our time and energy praying those kinds of prayers, we would really see the power of God unleashed in our lives and unleashed in this church. And, and I'm very excited about next week because Paul is going to, to really instruct us even more on prayer and, and teach us the kinds of things that we should be praying for. His, not only today we learn that prayer is a priority, but, but next week we're going to talk about, start talking about Paul's priorities in prayer. And, and, and Paul's going to reveal to us some, some more amazing things about God's glorious purposes for your life and, and for the church and, 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 and what the key is to living a kind of life that is worthy of what God has called you to. So stay tuned. More coming next week as we continue our enrollment in the school of prayer. Let's pray. Father, in the spirit of how Paul prayed, I, I bend the knee before you right now, and I lift up my brothers and my sisters in Christ, and I pray that what we have been speaking of these past several weeks in the book of Ephesians about our identity in Christ, about our glorious calling about your fatherhood over us and about the grand purpose of this church, which is to put on display to the universe God's wisdom. I pray that all of these truths would sink deeply into their hearts and into my heart, and that you, as a, you would help us as a church to walk in accordance with those realities, not to walk in accordance with lies, but with the truth of your word. And specifically, right now I pray that you would help us to be more of a praying church, that you would make prayer a greater priority corporately and in our personal prayer life, that we would not just in the morning rush on with our day and maybe throw up a two-second prayer to you and never think about talking with you again. May we be better exemplars of what the Bible urges us to do, which is to pray without ceasing. And Father, as you help us to be more faithful in prayer, then I ask that we would see the results of that, which will include closer communion and fellowship with you, greater levels of holiness, greater levels of power and impact in our personal lives and us corporately as a church for the kingdom of God. Help us with all those things. And, and thank you, Father, that when we come to you with these kinds of prayers, we are praying to a God that can do abundantly more than we could even ask or think because you are Lord of all. In Jesus' name, amen.